This morning, if you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. Now, admittedly, when you get to genealogies in Scripture, it's like, oh no, we're not going to actually read that, are we? And the bigger question is why, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But I think it's really important that we back up just a little bit as we finished last time uh, to the baptism of the Lord Jesus, because there's a very, very important thing that, that is really in view there, and I want to make sure that we we have it clearly in view before we move on to the genealogy, which we will, in fact, read and get to today. And that begs the question, in the ministry of John the Baptist, he baptized Jesus. Why in the world, if Jesus is God, would Jesus need to be baptized? It's kind of one of those questions that people often ask, and very frequently people who are new in their walk with the Lord will ask that question, and I will give them a bunch of answers. And I will tell you this morning that it's extremely important that we keep this in view, because in fact Jesus was fully God, and at the same time what we call the hypostatic union, Uh, He was fully God and fully man. So he was never less than God, and he was never less than a human being. And so in that, uh, we're going to look at the baptism of Jesus before we move on to the genealogy, because these two things are very much tied together. And so this morning, would you pray with me, and let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Father, we thank you. Lord, for the beauty of your word, every jot, every tittle, Lord, these words that we have that were inspired by the Holy Spirit, written down by men of old, Lord, so that we might know the good, the gracious King that has saved us. And so, God, we ask that you'd bless us, give us ears that are now attentive to the details of the things that your Scripture speaks. Help us to know and understand and obey. God, we love you, we thank you for the life that we have in Christ, and we pray that you would just simply bless us as we study your word this morning. Fill us with your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Backing up just a few verses from our passage we'll look at this morning. In verse 21 it says, And when all the people were baptized, so all the people, that's everybody, all these Folks that had come to the River Jordan, so Jesus has come from Nazareth, which is adjacent to the Sea of Galilee, uh, down through the Jordan River Valley to the site that John is baptizing at. And it came to pass, it says there in the second half of the verse, that Jesus was also baptized. Hence our question I began with this morning. It's kind of seemingly odd that Jesus himself would entertain being baptized if you only view him as God the Savior. But if you view him as the Son of Man, it becomes very, very obvious. And remember, he is both. And so Jesus was also baptized. And while he prayed, uh, if you would underline that, it's very important. Because here's why. If Jesus took the time to be baptized and Jesus took the time to pray, how important do you think it is for us to take the time to be baptized and to pray? Sometimes we forget that Jesus is also a model of our lives, that we live in him. And so he did not exempt himself from all of the things that he would want for us as people. We're to model Christ in all ways. We're going to get to the Beatitudes in this wonderful book as well. These things that we, uh, as his disciples, ought to be, live, act like. 
And so while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and in you I am well pleased. Turn now to Matthew's Gospel, to chapter 3. When we look at this passage of Scripture, one of the things that stands out immediately, if you're a student of Scripture, which most of you are, is you look at this passage of Scripture, there's something that's being said here that can't be missed if you're attentive to the details. You have in a couple of sentences the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit all in one sentence, and all of them being singled out individually. So they can't just simply be one person that's extant in three different places, but it literally is showing the personhood of God the Father, the personhood of the Holy Spirit in the dove, and the personhood of Jesus Christ. And notice this, verse 13 of Matthew 3. And then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. So he specifically set out from Nazareth, from his hometown in the region of Galilee, and he's now traveling that distance down to meet John. And John tried to prevent him. Again, hence my question. John's thinking exactly like you and I would think about Jesus, God's only son. Why? What's the point? Why should I baptize you? He even says it. He says, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. Verse 15, very important. Look at it with me if you would. But Jesus answered and said to him, Jesus speaking to John the Baptist, Jesus looking into John's eyes, permit it to be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. Very important that you realize the Gospels were written specifically from different human perspectives and provide in totality the whole picture. We're going to see that as well as we get to the genealogy. So why then was he baptized? Well, to begin with, he identified with you and I, the sinners he came to save. Because in that human form, he's saying, I'm tempted in all ways such as you are, and yet without sin. And I need to be baptized in the fact that I'm a human being. Second thing, this baptism was the official start of his ministry. Up until this point in time, he's basically been wandering around Galilee. He, we saw him in the temple and his parents abandoning him. You know, they were the first case of child protective services being needed there in, in Jerusalem. You know, it's like, what you do with your kids? Back in Jerusalem, oh, we better go get him, honey. You see, what happens now is he's going to begin his ministry, which doesn't last very long. It's going to take up the rest of Luke's gospel, by the way. That two and a half years is what forms the rest of the Gospel of Luke. 
It also is a time that at that day and time, the Jewish Levites, the priestly order, would begin their work at about age 30. They're from Numbers chapter 4. And so he was fulfilling all the human requirements that would be made of him, because you remember what everyone's going to call him. When they saw Jesus, they would say, Rabboni, teacher, rabbi, what do you have to say? You're going to speak to us. You're going to teach us. And so he was saying to them that in every way that I can humanly play this out for you, I'm identifying with you. I want you to know that I know what it's like to be a human being. And so here, in what way, notice, did Jesus fulfill all righteousness? Kind of a weird thing, unless you have in view what baptism actually means. Because he says something, and it's probably in your Bibles, maybe capitalized depending on the version you have. It says, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Who's the us? Ask yourself the question. Let me give you the wrong answer. It's not Jesus and John. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The ones that he just mentioned. He's saying it's, for fitting, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And it's pictured in his baptism in the Jordan. And so as Jesus is baptized, just like as we baptize today... That baptism signifies, as, as you come down the steps and into the water, there's a life that's been lived apart from the cleansing of Christ. In Jesus' case, he was fully God, so there's no sin, but he is identifying with us. He's saying, in your flesh, you need to be identified this way, because we're all sons and daughters of Adam, Amen. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so in his baptism, as he comes into the water, he's identifying with you and me. And as the next steps take place, the old man is put underneath the cleansing flow of the water. Cleansed, washed, made new. You're raised up in that new life. It's at that point that the Holy Spirit of God descends upon Jesus in His humanity. doesn't need to enter Him like the Holy Spirit does for you and I, but descends upon Him because He is flesh. He is actually one of us. And so Jesus has the Holy Spirit come upon Him in His flesh. Next is the voice that comes from heaven that says, Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So in this picture, the us is Jesus submitting to Father God's plan. Father spoke from heaven, identified Him as His own beloved Son. Amen? He says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So you have God the Father speaking of Jesus the Son, and the Spirit comes. And so, as you look at this, if you've ever been one of those people that says, well, the Trinity's not taught in Scripture, yes, it is very clearly. 
because you have all three persons of the Godhead, that's the us. We're all involved in this. Jesus, His part. God, His plan. Holy Spirit, His power. Visibly descending. And basically what Jesus was saying is this is God's plan. This is what I came to this world to do. Remember, Jesus was always a man on a mission. There was not one single aspect of Jesus' life that was random. So when we get to the end of the story and Jesus is actually arrested, it wasn't random. It wasn't Judas was a, a great deceiver and liar. It was God in heaven saying, I sent my only begotten son to this earth to die for sinful mankind to save them from their sins. This is one of only three times in all of Scripture that God actually speaks from heaven, and it's audible. Does it at the transfiguration? Does it again uh, shortly before the cross? And so Jesus is praying here, and, and that was Jesus' habit. One of the things that we'll do when we get to the camp today, we're going to pray. We're going to ask God, each and individual person that's baptized, we're going to pray for them. And we're going to pray for the work of God. We're going to pray for the power of the Spirit and for the resurrected life to now be lived in Christ. These three things is exactly what's going to happen. And so Luke now seemingly interrupts this picture of baptism to talk about the ancestry of Jesus. And I can tell you this, it's absolutely not an interruption, it's the plan. Because now it begins to make sense why he would move immediately to the ancestry of Jesus. Because if Jesus is not who Jesus says he is, if Jesus is not the only begotten Son of God, if Jesus isn't the Genesis 3.15 seed of the woman, if Jesus is not absolutely everything that the Messiah is supposed to be, then this whole story is a farce. And so as Jesus announces that he is the Messiah, because that's now happened, God the Father says, this is my beloved Son, pointing back to the very first prophecy found in your Bible in Genesis chapter 3. This is the promised one. And so now it makes perfect sense. Jesus wasn't acting alone at that baptism, that first baptism. He was fulfilling exactly what Father God had planned. He is doing exactly what the Holy Spirit had empowered. He is showing his own birth, his own death, and his own resurrection. So two of those things were yet to come, but he was signifying exactly what would happen when it happened. So when David the psalmist cries out, You will not leave my soul in Sheol a thousand years earlier. Jesus is saying in his baptism as he was raised up, that he would be raised up. And so his disciples would go on to hear these things, and then the pieces of the puzzle would come together. And now we find ourselves at the genealogy of Jesus. So let's read these verses together. We're going to take them all at once. Uh, there are 75 names here. It will take us about five minutes 
to look at these names, but it's important. And as you go through them, start to pick out some of the names you know. Because it's really important when we get to finding out what it is that God's trying to describe here. And so now Jesus himself began his ministry in verse 23 at about 30 years of age, being as was the supposed the son of Joseph. In other words, he was not literally Joseph's son. It's highly likely that he was adopted by Joseph because that's what would happen. If you had a son that was brought into your house, you could take them to the temple and pronounce that you were adopting them. They would become your literal heir at that point in time. And so no doubt that Joseph did that. The son of Halai. And the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Mechli, and the son of Jana, the son of Joseph. And so he begins with all of these names. The son of Mathaniah, the son of Amos, the son of Natham the son of Elsie, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mathaniah, the son of Simei, and the son of Joseph, the son of Judah, the son of Jonas, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shaliel, and the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kossum, the son of Elodam, the son of Ur, the son of, you didn't know this, Jose, no, that's Josie, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathath, the son of Levi. And so now you can see that he's starting to come up with some names that you can begin to remember from your study of the Old Testament. Up until now, this is the run of those names that kind of preserve the lineage. The son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Johan, the son of, the son of Elohim, and the son of Melia, the son of Manan, the son of Matanah, and the son of Nathan, the son of David. Very, very, very important, dead here in the middle, is the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz. You know the story of Ruth. Why is she important? Well, guess what? She's right here dead in the middle of the lineage of the king of kings and the lord of lords. The son of Salmon, the son of Nashon the son of Amenadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, and the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac. You starting to get the picture? All of these names, when you go back through your Old Testament, when you read Chronicles, Samuel, and Kings, these are the people that are listed there. So this is the tie directly back to the actual lineage that proves who Jesus is. And so it says, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, directly to the patriarchs. And so he goes on, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Rehu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, and the son of Canaan, the son of Arxaphad, and the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech. So now we're all the way back to the flood of Noah. And he goes to the son of Methuselah. He's directly related to the oldest dude that ever lived. The son of Enoch, living prophet at the time. The son of Jared, the son of Mathalel, and the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, and the son of God. Now, the first question that pops up for many a studious Bible student 
is, well, the two genealogies, the one in Matthew and the one in Luke, are not the same. What's going on? How can that possibly be? Why is that there? Now remember what I told you about the Gospels, and it's extremely important that you remember this, that when you read the Gospel accounts, God did His homework, okay? He gave us very different perspectives in each of the Gospels. In Matthew's Gospel, you have a Jewish tax collector. In Luke's Gospel, you have a Gentile doctor. Amen? So you have two totally different perspectives on the world. One Gentile, one Jewish. So in Matthew's Gospel, you have the link that takes Jesus back to the throne of David very clearly. Because that would be what's most important to the Jewish reader. So as Matthew pens his gospel, he's concerned to establish the Jewishness of Jesus the Messiah. Going forward, Matthew's genealogy begins with Abraham and moves forward to Jesus. You get the picture? Now notice what happens in Luke. Luke's gospel begins with Jesus and moves backward to Adam. They're actually completely different perspectives, but they provide the picture that we need to see because Jesus came to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. He is Lord of all. He's the Messiah of glory. He is the answer to man's problems, and it does not matter whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile. Jesus is the reason. Amen? He's the one that's the answer to mankind's problem. And so you have here a description that gets us everybody's answer. You put the two of them together, the picture's complete. So Luke links Jesus to all humanity. Everybody. Matthew links him to the Jews, to the chosen people of God that God made the Abrahamic covenant to, the Mosaic covenant with, the one whom he would say, well, we're God's chosen people. He is all of that, and he's also the one that's the answer to every single person who's ever walked the face of the earth, and Luke takes that position. Matthew gives the Lord's ancestry through Joseph. Luke gives the Lord's ancestry through Mary. He's establishing the whole picture works. doesn't matter which part of it you take. It all funnels back to exactly one man, and his name is Jesus. Matthew goes all the way back as far as David, the founder of the Hebrew royal family, and then he leaps to Abraham, the founder of the Hebrew racial family. You get the picture? He's saying, man, I don't care how you look at this. If you take this accounting of who these people are, you're going to find that every word of Scripture is true. It's important that you're able to trust your Bible. And as you read these things, people say, well, you know, the Bible is just a disjointed group, a collection of odd stories that are very old. No, it's absolutely meticulously planned by the Holy Spirit. It was written down by men who spanned a period of time of about 1,600 years. But those authors who authored the Scriptures were under the influence of the one Holy Spirit. And so what you have is a unified, codified response of God saying, Look, you can trust me. What I say is true. Matthew traces the line through Solomon, the son of David, and Bathsheba. 
Luke traces the line through David, but follows the hidden, very secret line of Nathan. Very, very important that you realize these things, because we're going to see in just a moment, Satan's whole focus and goal for the entire time that mankind has existed on this planet is to wipe out this one man. That's been Satan's track. That's what he's been trying to do. If Satan could have kept Jesus from this earth, killed him at some point in time, then he could prove that he was an equivalent to God. But God being God, and Satan not being God, God wins. And so he preserves the line of Jesus. And remember, that is kind of an odd line that Nathan comes, because it's the product of David and Bathsheba, and their relationship wasn't exactly stellar at first, amen? Kind of started out the wrong way, amen? God uses still the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. It's how he works. He's always worked that way. Sometimes it doesn't make sense to us. He can speak through donkeys. He can speak through rocks and trees. He's still speaking. Luke, carefully guided by the Holy Spirit, says that Jesus was supposed to be the son of Joseph. He was nothing of the kind. He was the long-awaited seed of the woman. No explanation for how Jesus got to this earth, but miraculously. No one could take credit for it. He wasn't a human being in the sense that we would know a human mother and a human father. He had a divine father and a human mother. One of one. Exactly what Colossians says. Not one of many, one of one. Fully God, fully human. And so Joseph, the husband of Mary, uh, adopts Jesus. And so when Joseph was married, marries Mary, basically, the regal line through Solomon and the natural line through Nathan are now united. They're put together. So you have the regal line through Solomon. You have the natural line of human birth. Uh, and, and here they're joined through Nathan. And throughout history, Satan has been trying to destroy Jesus. That's what he's been up to the whole time. Look how he went after the first human beings. Think about it in the garden. Adam and Eve are, are the only ones there. If he can accomplish the task and get rid of them, it's done. But he can't and doesn't. Mankind moves on. That's why you have these genealogies. You can see how God in every step of the way was one, two, ten, fifty, a thousand steps of whatever Satan's plans were. He is a defeated foe. He was in the garden. He is today. Amen? He, he can't win. He's not the equivalent. He's not God's equal. Sometimes I, I, I talk to people and you almost get the sense that they believe that there's this grand war and you have God and you have Satan. Or you have Jesus and you have Satan and they're co-equals. One is intimately wonderful and good and one is horrifically evil. But they're basically equal. It's simply not true. Satan is not Christ's equal. He's not God's equal. He is not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He absolutely does not and does, will never have the capacity that Jesus has. But he's very strong. 
And he's been working really hard to try and get rid of anything that remotely reminds the world that God loves them. And so you have evil. Satan makes sure that evil to this day continues to be in the forefront of our minds. And when you look, and I want you to notice this for a second, and if you want, go ahead and turn there. 1 Kings chapter 11, you can flip back. Uh, It's most of the way back to the uh, middle of the Old Testament. In chapter 11, and remember here in the middle of this, you have the, the lineage of Solomon, the king. And I want to show you exactly how Satan tried to wipe out Jesus. Now, if you know anything about Solomon, he's widely believed to be the wisest man that ever lived and the biggest idiot that's ever walked the face of the earth. Wisest man that ever lived wrote the book of Proverbs, by the way. Okay, pretty wise guy. Responsible for the book of Ecclesiastes. There is nothing new under the sun. True today, amen? World's still working the way it's always worked. It's a mess. Verse 1, But King Solomon loved many foreign women. Now this guy's got more, we would use the phrase in our vernacular, he has more money than God. He was so blessed of the Lord, this is the richest man, widely believed his fortune was in the trillions in today's value. He would have been the world's only trillionaire ever, okay? This guy is famously wealthy. He has all the power that you could possibly ever want. He loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, the women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidonians, and the Hittites. If you know anything about your Old Testament, he loved everything God told him not to. He says, don't do it. Stay away from them. This is bad. Don't go there. Yes, they're physically attractive, but they do not mean you well. From the nations whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. For surely, notice what God tells them. They will turn your hearts after their gods. That was the issue. What's the first command? Thou shalt have no other god before me. That's the issue. The issue is who's Lord. The issue is who's ruling and reigning in your heart and mine. In Solomon's. And it goes on. Solomon clung to these in love. The word translated love there does not mean agape love. It was sexual lust, basically. He said, I I just love women, period. And he had, do you think sister wives is bad? Okay. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. Another word for prostitute, by the way. He had 1,000 women at his disposal. You talk about having a chance to have your heart turned away from the Lord. I'm not real good at making sure that my one wife is completely and fully loved, cared for, tended to. I haven't got a clue what you do with a thousand wives, okay? Preach it. Whenever kids ask me, well, how come plural marriage is wrong? 
Solomon. That's all I say. Solomon. Read his story. It doesn't work, okay? And his wives turned away his heart. Exactly what God said would happen, okay? For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, and as was the heart of his father David. Now you know why this genealogy is so important. Because when you look at the history that follows, okay, when you look at the history of the children of Israel, because Solomon in his disobedience and his rebellion to the Lord, if Satan ever had a chance to wipe out Jesus, it was right then, right there. Because you have the direct descendant of David, Solomon, who's now doing everything he can to make sure that David's line dies out. If Jesus can't be linked to David, if he can't be linked to the priestly line and to the Davidic royal line, you don't have a Messiah. There's no King of Kings, no Lord of Lords. It ends with Solomon. And through Solomon, the oppressions that he brought were staggering. You have Jehoshaphat, basically a good king, but he was a fool just like his father, and he ends up with, uh, as the daughter, one of his daughters uh, marries Ahab and, and Jezebel come into the scene. And then you have Athaliah, who's the only woman ruler ever over the nation of Israel. And so as she reigns, she tries to wipe out all... She actually has all the babies killed that are male. So there's only women left in the line. Fortunately for us, God preserved that line through Nathan. And ultimately, Nathan would be the one that would preserve that line. And so his name is listed here. If that doesn't happen, we're in trouble. We do not have the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus couldn't be unless we can prove his lineage. And so Satan zealously working to overthrow the royal line through whom the Messiah would come. Uh, ultimately, via Solomon, God has another line through Nathan. And I love this because that leads right down to Mary, who's this innocent young girl who's a nobody, who's a peasant, who when we look at her life, it's like, well, she's not related to anybody. Yes, she is. She's related to Nathan. And Nathan can be traced back to David. And so the priestly line and the Davidic royal line still are intact. God is perfect in all that he does. And so he gives us this beautiful picture so that when you pick up your Bible, you go, Ha! You thought. You go through these names, and like, I don't care who these... Yeah, you do care who these people are, because these 75 names run you back through human history. And they make sure that you know exactly who Jesus is, so that ultimately he can be traced all the way to Adam from both directions. Notice what happens. Satan's foiled. He, he can't be everywhere at once, like God can. He does not have all knowledge as God does. He does not have all power as God does. He's running around chasing after what looks like the royal line. 
And so he's trying to wipe out kings, and the whole time God says, no, that's okay, you go ahead and keep going that way because I got that covered. It's all right. And so as we move through these particular people, I want you to notice what happens. You have three lines that are broken up into sections in this passage of Scripture. There is the royal line. This embraces the, the secret years, those things that we kind of don't have a lot of history on, the silent years. We have that now completely taken care of. And then he switches over to the religious line. He goes back uh, from David to Abraham. And so what we have now is the ability to link Jesus not just to the royal line, but also to the promised line of Abraham, the promised line of Jesse, Boaz. You, you know, sometimes when people read the book of Ruth, it's like, this is just a weird book. It's like we just finished with Hosea. It's like, you want me to marry who? You know, you, you read these things, and then all of a sudden you realize why God has all these strange tidbits of history included in the Word of God, because they're these things that link us all the way back to who Jesus must be for Him to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. And if those details aren't there, we have some severe problems with our Bibles. And so God takes care of that. Boaz, married to Ruth, who was a Moabitess, by the way, sworn enemy of the children of Israel, but she was one of the most godly women that ever lived in all of human history. So God says, you know what, just because you're born into a tribe doesn't mean that you don't have the ability yourself to be holy, to be righteous, and to live for Christ. Beautiful picture. Now you remember Solomon, you saw his name in there, kind of weird. It looks like Solomon, kind of like a salmon, only a little bit different, I don't know. Salman was married to Rahab, who was the harlot. You ever wondered why she was in Scripture? It's like, okay, so she was a redeemed person of ill repute, and you know she got right with the Lord. She's in the lineage of Jesus. That's why she's in there. And again, she shows this beautiful picture of God's grace in action. Amen? I love God's grace in action. Because if I were to do it my way... It'd just be all the, you know, there'd be pillars to every one of the people in Jesus' lineage. You could just kind of like walk down some hallway. It's kind of like when you go to the Capitol and you walk down the, the Senate chambers and there's all these statues of people who are famous in that particular, came from that state and everybody gets to pick a couple and you've got them in there and you walk and it's just like, okay, well, he's related to that. And over here from Hawaii, that's Father Damien. And, you know, you, I would make it really clear that way. But then Jesus could, he, he would be who he says he is, but Satan would have had an opportunity to undo the work. Amen? He could have just gone after the one or two people that were in that line and effectively wiped out Jesus. God says, no, nah, that's not going to work. So Salmon married to Rahab the harlot. And then all the way back through Judah and Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. We, we, we just travel along this line of sacred history. And I love that, because your Bible kind of looks boring in spots. Amen? You can say amen. There's parts of it. I mean, if, if you're like addicted to Leviticus, we got to pray for you, you know? It's just like you start reading, it's like, oh, man, not another rule, another law. I'm like, and you read the genealogies in the Old Testament, they're worse than the ones in the New Testament. You know, so-and-so begot so-and-so, and he begot so-and-so. It's all for the express purpose of proving who Jesus is. It's sacred history. It's the history of redemption. 
It's God crying out from time. I loved you from the beginning. I love you now. I will always love you. And I want you to know that, so I'm going to make sure that you understand I always had it under control. It was never out of my view. And so when you go back, the names, you, you, you get linked to the big bluster, the mighty mouth, Saul. You know, someone who just had to pump up everything. Samuel, you, you get the judges of Israel. When you read the book of Judges, it's just like, and everyone did that, which is right in their own eyes. You just want, you want to hurt somebody after a while. It's just like, this is terrible. These people are knuckleheads. Why don't they get it? It's all there for a purpose. You have to have every bit of that detail, otherwise the story is incomplete. You get back to Joshua and conquering Canaan. They're always the, the glory stories. You know, you just have these folks that stand out, like, Jacob, you you just sit there and Joshua and Moses on the Sinai. Can I give you a little thing about Moses? When the children of Israel got to the other side, you know what happened to the road that they traveled on? It closed. God left them no way but Him. He says, my way is the way of grace. That road that I opened up, that was a one-time deal to get you over here. It was a picture of the work of the cross. He says, there's only one way to get here, and you can't keep it yourself, and you can't go back the way you came, because it's a once and for all deal. It's these beautiful pictures that you have in the Old Testament. We go back, the Spirit of God is recording all of the necessary names, not every name, but all of the necessary names, so that you can rest and have trust and confidence. We continue to climb that ladder of history and You get back to Abraham. Remember where Abraham was? He was in pagan Ur. I mean, he was in a place that's just like, you live where? You know, we we could look at it and we go, man, that's the last place in the world you would think that God would send the the father of multitudes from, the one about whose lineage would be a blessing to all peoples on the earth. And yet here's Abraham. And he was no stellar dude, amen? Amen. I mean, he's a liar, he was a cheat, he was a deceiver, he denied that his wife was even his wife. I mean, he wasn't exactly the perfect person, but he was necessary in the line of Jesus. And when you look back through all of these names, you know what you find? You find you. You find you. You find all of your faults, all of your weaknesses, all of your character defects, All of the good things, all of the bad things, all of the wonder, all of the spastic activity that humankind takes up, you find every bit of it in the lineage of Jesus. So when you get to Jesus, Jesus takes all of that ridiculousness of 60 centuries of human beings being on this earth, and he says, now I'm going to do something nobody's ever done before. I'm going to live a perfect, sinless life, and I'm going to die for everybody who's ever lived. That's the only way he could do it. He had to be linked to everyone, everywhere, and everything. And so he is. The world's events just kept on going. The Holy Spirit basically ignores them because there's only one family, as far as the Holy Spirit's concerned, that matter. That's the family of Jesus. Amen? You could have recorded all kinds of things. Your Bible could have been 
twice this thick just with the history of the peoples that were involved. But that is not how God works. He doesn't give us all the details. He gives us enough detail. When people ask, well, you know, the Bible is not a scientific. No, it's not necessarily a scientific book, but it gives you the basis of science in such a way that you can come to the conclusions yourself that there has to be a creator. That God indeed did exactly what he said he did. And then finally, there's the racial line in the last part of this chapter. The Holy Spirit takes us from the time before the flood, from Abraham back to Noah, and then the time all the way up to the fall. It doesn't pause. It's like Methuselah and Enoch and Cain and Abel and God and Adam. And then notice what it says. The Son of God. He's also the Son of Man. Amen? He's the Son of God. He's the Son of Man. He's both. The child who was born, he's the son who was given. He's God's only begotten son, but he's also one of us. The nail imprints will be in his hands when you meet Jesus. Those scars are there. They're for you. They're for me. So for all of its backwards trend, it takes us all the way back to the Son of God, the one whom we know as God the Son. Amen? We know Him as God the Son. Not just the Son of God, not just the Son of Man, but God the Son. The only begotten Son. And so God has always been about writing names down in books. Always been about writing names down in books. And in fact, the last book in your Bible contains a couple of books. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. And I ask you a question, because you realize that by your spiritual birth, you're listed in the lineage of Jesus as a child of God. Your name's in there, too, if you're one of Jesus' kids. Verse 11, and then I saw a great white throne, and of course this is speaking of a time that's yet, yet future, and to a judgment that we as the body of Christ will not face. This is the judgment of those who are not in the book, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, both small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works and by the things that were written in those books. And the sea gave up her dead that were in it, and death and Hades. So that's that other compartment of Abraham's bosom that has been emptied, and Sheol, which still maintains the, the abode of the unrighteous dead. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, for this is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You see, God's still writing down names in a book. And I would ask you a simple question. You see, uh, if you're born twice, if you're born twice, then your name's in his book. If you're born once, your name's not in his book, and there is a death worse than your actual death coming, and that's a spiritual death. And so when God writes your name down, it's because it's important. And he's done that for each of us who've named the name of Christ. Written in the Lamb's book of life. You ever thought what it would be like for 
you, you to see your name inscribed in Christ's book. You mean you wrote down my name? Yep, you mattered. As far as God's concerned, you're number one on His do list to-do list today. He thinks about you. When you wake up, the Lord's already been thinking about you. He already knows you and loves you. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 22, it goes on to say, But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb were its temple. Speaking of the new Jerusalem. There wasn't a need for the temple because the Lord himself was there. And he said, And the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it, and the Lamb and its light, and the nations of those who were saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it, and its gates shall not be shut all day and all night. There will be no night, for there shall be glory and honor for the nations to light it. And there shall be by no means anything that enters in it that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are in the Lamb's book of life. God's been jotting down names from day one. My question to you is, is your name written down in the book of life? Because if it is, it's going to be real good when you take your last breath. And if it's not, it's going to be real bad when you take your last breath. God wants to jot down your name. But he's not going to write it down until you ask him to. And if you do that, then you're going to inherit the king's kingdom and all the glories of it. And I pray you do. And if you haven't, today's a good day to invite the Lord to write your name in his book, along with all these names that take us all the way back to Adam. Amen? You want to pray that prayer? See me after church. I'd love to pray with you. Father, thank you for this time this morning. And Lord, we're so amazed at the accuracy of your word and how you have taken painstaking care to make sure that we know that our Savior is in fact the promised one of Genesis chapter 3. Lord, we bless you. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives and in this church. And Lord, I want to pray if there's anyone here this morning and they've never taken that leap of faith, that step to make you their Savior and their Lord. God, I pray that they would Simply come and confess you before men, Lord, that they might be saved and inherit that kingdom along with the rest of us who've named you by name. Lord, thank you for putting us in your book of life. Lord, we bless you. We praise you. We ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus and God's people all said, Amen. Amen.